Right. Okay. Welcome to you talking with Greg. I'm here with Robert Ryan, uh, a professor uh, who I've had a couple of really interesting conversations with. He popped up on Alexander Bard's list. Uh, I listened to him uh, talk on the Jim Rutt show. Um, and then I had the good fortune for us to develop a private conversation. Uh, and quite frankly, I've been chewing on his ideas ever since we had that. So it's really wonderful to have you here. I look forward. We've agreed in advance that Robert's going to sort of dive in and give us a uh, a strong argument uh, for what he's working on. Let me set you up for this uh, listeners in relationship to why I'm really excited about hearing this. Okay. So those of you following my work carefully know, obviously I'm totally embedded in the field of psychology. Okay. Uh, and that field of psychology, then as it attaches to the natural sciences and then moves into the human sciences and anthropology, and then jumps over to applied disciplines in psychotherapeutics. Uh, that's the center. And the unified you talk is all about affording consilience between natural science, psychology, and philosophy. However, or in addition, there's this whole relationship to the social sciences, okay? And how we shift into cultural anthropology on the one hand, and then shift into sociology, economics, political science, and the macroscopic systems of industry and technology and justifications and how all that shit works, which I'm kind of clueless about. Um, but we have an expert here today uh, to help us out. Uh, Robert, welcome. Uh, thanks so much for coming along. It'll be fun. Thanks. Yeah. So, so uh, just to uh, riff off what you just said, first of all, um, I'm a professor, assistant professor at Clayton State University, um, which is uh, in the Atlanta area in Georgia. And uh, I teach entrepreneurship, business strategy. Uh, I'm developing a course for this spring, which is called um, Video Games, Virtual Worlds and hmm. AR, VR. Hmm. Um, Cool. This is the number one, you know, kind of hot uh, entrepreneurship area for the next decade. Mm. Um, so I think it's appropriate to kind of give them a, a course specifically on uh, on those technologies totally. so they can examine those opportunities. And uh, so but before I became a business professor, uh, I also uh, did uh I had a master's in economics. I also had an MBA, but basically I did a dual master's program at University okay. of Delaware. Mm. Well, to be honest, what happened is I had to skip out on the, uh, on the thesis for the econ. So it's, uh, technically mm. it ended up becoming like a concentration or something, but yep. I had okay. accepted to a PhD program. So I had to split. I'm like, you know, my ego mm. does not require that it actually officially says <laughs> master's. So right, right, right. whatever. But then before that, I also did international relations and anthropology in my undergrad. Hmm. So I have sort of a, um, and, and all along I've been doing work with philosophy and, uh, and sociology and so forth. So right. I developed a sort of uh, encyclopedic view of the social sciences. And uh, I, I even though I would say psychology isn't my strongest suit, I also have a PhD minor in organizational, organizational learning and human cognition. Oh, well, that's a bridge. <laughs> So, uh, we can certainly you know, plug into that little, world. A little, little psychology. And <laughs> yeah, stuff. I know you know a lot about Herb Simon and uh, decision making and all of that satisfying good stuff. Yeah. And, you know, um, so I'm glad you brought that up because uh, uh, really one way to frame this is, is, you know, when you go through an academic journey, journey, you pick up schools of thought, not just fields. So, for example, uh, economics doesn't mean anything to an economist. When you just say, oh, you, you, you're an economist. And they're like... <laughs> 
and like what kind you know like <laughs> totally. uh, you know it's like saying you like football okay but what team do you, <laughs> you follow you know right and you mean soccer in europe or you mean actual american football <laughs> right, right. No, so, that level of differentiation is possible yeah <laughs> Right, or is I, I am an uh, uh, Atlanta FC United supporter, so I'm. Oh, okay. There you go. Well, it's the biggest soccer market in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, uh, brand new team, though. If they've only been around for a few years, mm-hmm. but anyway, um, but yeah. So, like, uh, when you say you're an economist, wait, are you a Keynesian? Are you, uh, you know, an Austrian or a neo-Austrian? What are you? Right. Right. And you know, ninety percent of economists are in the mainstream, but. Uh, uh, um, even within the mainstream, there's fragments. So, for example, uh, Paul Krugman was one of the guys who really made uh, geo- economic geography important mm-hmm, for mainstream mm-hmm. ec- ec- economics. You know, and before yep. Paul Krugman, a lot of people had said, well, that was a subfield that's over mm. here and it's of special interest for special mm-hmm. stuff. Like if you're studying civilizations or something, cities mm-hmm. and things like that, you need to do geographic analysis. But it didn't become mainstream until Krugman started pointing out that, you know, geographic issues in trade were essential and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, um, so long story short, like over the years, the various different heterodoxies get folded back into the mainstream and it swallows it back in. Yep. And uh, uh, so economics has been on this terror of trying to do that. But a lot of the other social sciences are behind in terms of folding those things back in. So mm. we have this huge explosion of heterodoxies in all these social sciences. Agree. And, and you know, the further you're away from mathematical proof as your uh, as your centering principles for so- social science, the, the the greater the scatterings are and in, in, in fragmentations. And so. You know, I'm so I'm seeing a lot of the same problems uh, that you're seeing in psychology across many of the other areas. And, and again, I want to mention that psychology is so big. I believe there, it's roughly equivalent in size of economics in terms of research publication. But in terms of practitioners, you're more than <clears throat> 10 times the size. <laughs> Clearly. Yes, that's a practitioner. <laughs> and that's actually a really interesting just history to know. Um, right. Psychology, certainly in the, you know, Britain into the United States, German and Russian and others a little different. Psychology means all these different things. But the empirical discipline of it. Um, then becomes an experimental enterprise off the Enlightenment and the primary founders are trying to build the academic practice and are seen as some kind of research discipline that comes off of biology. That's generally where most people are placing it. But then in the 1940s and 50s, especially after World War II, you get a massive infusion from the government to help with adjustment, post-world adjustment. So they pour all this money into clinical psychology. And then we see in the back half of the 20th century that explodes and not even in psychology, counseling, therapy, all over. You get the entire mental health cottage industry and you multiply it out that way. And the whole I mean, it's just an unbelievable industry at that level. Right, right. And so um, even today, you still have journals of psychotherapy, of journals of humanist psychology, of Buddhist psychology, of, totally. you know, integral psychology of, you know, and and, um, and some of these so schools don't get along so well with each other. And uh, it's interesting, however, that uh, I wanted to point out before I launch into my pitch, mm-hmm. you know, 
it seems like sometimes the most bitter rivals are among those meta schools or those who claim to have some sort of meta status where we're saying, oh, we're the we're the we're the home base field. The rest of you guys are doing subfield oh. stuff. And yeah. so, like, in, for example, one of the, the, the smallest but most fierce uh, subfields that's making claims to be meta is integral psychology. And uh, it's interesting when you in this space, it seems so obvious to these to, to people who are integral involved where they say, can't you tell that we're at the center of what counts <laughs> as meta or integrated or, or what, you know, <laughs> so what? Your world is so small that you're not aware of how small it appears to the mainstream or, totally. or to those who are not with you on that. Right. <laughs> and 100%. so you're walking into that same kind of scenario where the people who have encountered you and had conversations with you seem to be, it's like, why can't everybody else see what we're doing? You know, and it's, uh, it's so yeah. you're kind of going through the same growing pains as integral as being, uh, but then there's also this potential rivalry there too. What do you think of that? Well, that's a really interesting. Uh, so it, yeah, it, integral actually inside of academic psychology, nobody knows anything about integral integral for it's, it's basically given no credibility inside. Of, I, I was a well-trained psychologist when I pr produced my 2003 article. I, and you'll see, I don't cite Ken Wilbur in the 2003 article because I barely heard of the guy and had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> okay. right. So then I learned in 2003, four, somebody pointed out, I was like, uh, you know, there's an integral that's all this claims to be kind of a unified psychology. Uh, in fact, Ken put out integral psychology very close at the same time. Then I was like, oh, God, I probably should have cited this guy. <laughs> then I entered into the world of integral. And my initial reaction, because I'm trained as a naturalist behavioral scientist, is, oh, actually, that drops into spiritualism. So that's kind of woo. No wonder we don't pay any attention. I was fairly right. critical of it. Okay. Over the time, that's totally changed. And in fact, my current book, I um, especially it's changed on a number of things that I don't need to get into here, but I'm, I'm much more affiliative. I connect with Layman Pascal and Bruce uh, Alderman, who are sort of post integral stage guys who I think are unbelievably brilliant. I really love the bridge between uh, Roy Bashkar's critical realism and integral. They said did some wonderful things along those lines. I totally see you talk as in that ballpark uh, and, and really, and I see this is the age of integrated pluralism. Uh, so it's the age of big ideas that are going to transcend this com competition to be the one true ring. Okay. But actually creates a weave around an integrated pluralistic structure uh, across a wide variety of different domains. If we get that right, that's complicated, but if we get that right, I, I think that's a whole new kind of way of being and way of relating ideas together. Uh, so in that sentiment and sensibility, I'm very much positively uh, inclined towards uh, integral and see a lot of overlap and I'm clear about the differences too. Uh, but I think they're more complementary than they are competitive. Yeah. And you know, that's interesting because uh, that, that's, that leads into our conversation where we're talking about uh, big models that have potential to be uh, to have high complementarity to each other. And what I keep saying to my friends is that that's only possible if you, uh, if you uh, focus on interoperability in the way that you design your theories. And you know, if you're trained in the mainstream, you're, if that's grilled into your head is that every advance that you make has to have very careful ex uh, extensions and connections to everything else that's uh, been validated so far. And so, mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're very incremental in mainstream work uh, when yeah. we do that. 
But then um, when we get outside of that, then then we often find that it's a zoo of people who are all very, uh, very sure of their own models and very rivalrous about others and have a lot of strong emotions about uh, what the mainstream did to them or what other schools of thought that they have rivalry with and so forth. Sure. And having been through that myself um, and, and seen that pattern happen over and over again in many spaces, I've seen it in, in many different fields. Um, it's, there's sort of like a field level dynamic where paradigms are shifting, you know? Mm -hmm. totally. So you and I can both relate to the uh, Kuhnian paradigm, paradigm shift conversation. And basically, uh, uh, some paradigms are sort of implicit where it's like, well, you know, we're doing relativity theory, you know, it's a grab bag of equations that we all agree on and it has these implications, but wasn't written, written like here's the paradigm, uh -huh. here's the book, uh -huh. relativity chapters, volume one through five. It really wasn't put together like a formal encyclopedia of relativism, you know, uh -huh. but uh, people like you and I think that's uh, kind of a drawback and that uh, um, we were in a period from uh, 1940 to 2020 were basically like a, a, a postmodern culture mm. period. Mm -hmm. And there's an overlap between that and what I call the empirical science, big science period, which was mm -hmm. 1900 to 1980-ish roughly. Mm. Uh -huh. And so it was at peak uh, uh, relativism between 40 and 80 when you have ra radical empiricism overlapping with uh, relativism and, and uh -huh. after World War II. Uh -huh. Okay. And we're kind of flipping to the opposite right now where we're saying, you know, we've done that. We, we use that as our research paradigm for a long period of time to do lots of little specific things. Robert Merton kind of started that. Mm -hmm. One of those mm -hmm. people basically said science shall be middle range and no higher. We mm. don't do grand models. We don't do big integrative texts. And this was because it was all the rage to do that during modernity period of culture, 1860 to 1940, everyone was looking for big stage models, big grand right. models, big everything. And, and the rivals re, were bitter between these models. And it yep. was like Herbert Spencer says, you know, everything is evolution. And then if you would disagree with him, then he'll, he'll go to war against you. Totally. Don't go up right. against Anna Freud of the APA. You know, it, <laughs> you just can't do it. And then it was like John Maynard Keynes became, uh, you couldn't get a paper published in a journal unless it gave some sort of lip service to his mm -hmm. theory, you know? And, and so after mm -hmm. we had that era, it's understanding where this reaction where everything is decentralized and, and, and um, kind of incremental, but also scattered. Right. And so after doing that for a while, we've got this massive mound of research and somebody's got to dig through these trash heaps, you know, <laughs> we call them graduate students, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so we got to dig through all these trash heaps and we got to reverse this process and synthesize. So the 2020s are all about synthesis. So we're right here on, on pace in terms of these historical rhythms. And that means that we're looking at a paradigm shift. Love it. Moving mm -hmm. from what, again, like I said, uh, 1980 is the rough date where you would say complexity science really was um, being formalized 
Mm. And uh, as a thing, you know, uh, rather than as a few scattered ideas like cellular automata and mm-hmm. chaos mm-hmm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so in the 80s, that things started to coalesce. And so I look at scientific paradigm shifts as being roughly every 80 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, but they're kind of skewed to the back end. So mm-hmm. it's like you have this long curve where you have this stable paradigm stuff mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that we're very confident in, but you've mm-hmm. got this big barbarian horde of like other ideas, like right, right. fully accumulating and putting pressure and then right around 40 to 60 years out, there's a kind of big swing towards the mm. barbarians who mm-hmm. then, as Ibn Khaldun said in the 12th century, basically you have this cycle of the civilizations always being overtaken by the barbarians. Mm. And that's true <laughs> in science. So barbarians right the now. The barbarians are, at the gate. <laughs> yes. The complexity thinkers and the synthesis integralists, basically the people who want to like, take all of our information, reorganize it, condense it, make better encyclopedias, reset the textbooks. We've been doing these incremental generations on textbooks where it's like, we're on the ninth edition of the textbook that was written 60 years ago. And it's like, okay, let's go back to the first edition of the first version that uses complexity in chapter one. Right. And nice. Like, mm-hmm. You know, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. Yeah. Very good. And so we're looking at doing a scientific reset on complexity from chapter one and also on these on grand thinking again, mm-hmm. where we're going to say, you know what? We do need to give some students some grand models that they can work with so they can put all of these things into a framework and then continue to have a kind of like having a Dewey decimal system in your head where you can basically keep it all together and totally be very uh, individual learner friendly. And, uh, and uh, also, so you feel there's a cumulativeness to your learning that doesn't uh, get, isn't so damn messy. (laughs) Totally. That's really nicely said. In fact, I've had a number of people saying, you know, Greg, you were born in the wrong century. (laughs) It should have been born a hundred years ago in the context of meta models and and all, you know, Hegel and the like from Spencer and Hegel and all of that. Um, The nice thing is, is that there's all all sorts of different domains and the competition of the meta models. And then that disperses. And now that's exactly right. So I love the, the, the cyclical framing that we've got going on. And that's certainly all of a sudden now it feels, especially on the heels of COVID, there's an accelerating process of like things aren't right. And we need sense-making tools across a wide variety of different domains, And we got to work together quickly to construct them. At least that's the sensibility that I'm picking up across a wide variety of different domains. So there really does Absolutely. feel like this is a decade that is fundamentally shifting their basic um, needs for sense making and that pendulum is swinging the other way. Yeah. And so let me give you a, uh, a prognosis of where, uh, of what's going on here. So basically Please. like um, I will start at the now, and then I'm going to go back to the model and say, where did I get this? Okay. All right. Perfect. Right. Yep. So we can get a little bit of a hook. <clears throat> that's always good. Be business people tell me that's a good thing. <laughs> right. Let's, yeah. Let me give you the point first. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I, I, I want, I, I, I got to grab your attention before I justify myself. <laughs> Perfect. So how do we know where we are in history and uh, why are there people claiming to know that, mm. you know? So we have a subculture of futurism and a lot of people think they're, uh, a woo-woo, arcane, um, or, you know, flaky, or 
Read the tea leaves. <laughs> exactly. You know, like Paris psychology kind of stuff where it's like, so anyway, like, how can you possibly know the future, right? <clears throat> well, the thing is, most people don't know that the uh, uh, social sciences are much more advanced than, than, than they were even like 20, 30 years ago. But that the social sciences really uh, do give you abilities to predict the future in some rather objective ways that mm. might surprise people to know how good they are. Mm. <laughs> right. um, sort of like, you know, can we predict a hurricane? That kind mm -hmm, of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so be, it's really all about cycles and how many intervals we've seen. And so when you start to see a really strong pattern in history, the predictions strengthen. So I'm going to just give you some quick comments at the moment. Okay. So where are we in history? Well, uh -huh. the first way to answer that question is you have to know what the harmonics are, right? Mm. You've got to have some sort of like a basic harmonics. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry about that. I was interrupted okay. by a call. Okay. So uh, what are the harmonics? You know, so you got to start there. Well, clearly right. we know the economy, right? So the economy is, has a boom and a bust cycle and mm. that's a biggie, right? So we got a whole field of macroeconomics devoted to understanding the, are we up or down, you know, uh -huh, uh -huh, <laughs> and why uh -huh. and when, and then what all the consequences are. Uh -huh. Well, where are we now there? Okay. So we are in what's known as we're, we're at the uh, um, maturity point of the fifth techno-economic paradigm uh -huh. since the first industrial revolution. Okay. And at that maturity point, we have the upswing or the emergence of the sixth paradigm. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so some people are confused as to whether or not the technology in question is a fifth or a sixth paradigm. Is it mature? Okay. And the answer is, is it mature or emerging? Mm. So you'll hear people say things like, you know, augmented reality, um, mm. industry 4.0. And say, so, well, I see some people's calling industry for a point of the fourth industrial revolution. Mm. What if they're wrong? Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what if they don't have the correct number of revolutions? Mm. First of all, then they're going to be off on their harmonics and they're going to be making bad predictions. Mm -hmm. Second of all, what if the thing that they identified isn't even a revolution? Mm. Okay. Okay. So just as a quick example, Industry yep. 4.0, in my perspective, is the maturation phase of the fifth industrial paradigm, a.k.a. the digital paradigm. Okay. Mm. If you know that mm -hmm. and somebody tells you it's a revolution, you mm -hmm. can make a heck of a lot of money by betting against their assumptions about where mm. these things go in forecast. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, if uh, so, it's a very important financial difference for a business as to whether or not this is the maturation phase where you're going to be. Of course, actually, yeah. Yeah, mature industry strategy mm -hmm. centered around those technologies, or whether or not you're going to be practicing a different pattern of strategy centered around emergence and growth. All right. And so, diagnosing which side of this you're on mm -hmm. and which technologies are on what is extremely important. Hmm, makes perfect um, sense. So we're at that cusp where everyone's confused. Hmm, 
<laughs> I'll vouch for that. <laughs> right. And so that's natural because whenever you hit the, uh, basically the, you know, you have a, a inflection point when things taking off in an S mm-hmm. curve. Mm-hmm. And then when you hit, well, basically when things kind of pass that. Right. Of course. Mm-hmm. Curve the other direction and you hit maturity. People often think that it's going to bounce back up again. Right. And you're going to go skyrocketing off uh, in, in, in progress. But you may actually be flattening sharp flattening down. Definitely. Railroads, for example, went through that where uh, mm. there was uh, people were betting on railroads to go off into infinity until, mm. right up until the point that it happened. And then all the great railroad companies hit the wall. Bam. Steel. Right. Same thing happened. They were just predicting that the steel boom would go on forever. And then basically they hit the inflection wall so fast it put mm. off like one third of the companies out of business. Huge consolidation. And so this is a very common mistake made is knowing where you are there. Okay? Right. Uh-huh. So before I go on to the next point, do you have any questions about that? Well, what I'm actually, I don't know if people know much and I'm no expert, but there's things called Fourier transforms, which are basically the way in which you assess waves um, and har- harmonic oscillations. So you do it in physics and other kinds of things. And so what I'm hearing you is just sort of laying out social science wave kind of formulations and understanding crests, valleys and peaks and knowing what line you're trying to look at uh, and articulating that. And the difference then of predicting whether that thing's coming down or going up uh, is to get key on the right ontological line that we're talking about and its intersection with other lines. And and so I think that's what I'm sensing you're laying out here. That's right. And so basically, if you have the wrong units of analysis, you're going to make the wrong bet. So if everybody's betting on one unit and they're saying, I know uh, we've had this trend going along a long way, it's because of this X variable. Mm -hmm. It turns out that that trend was actually, you know, from variable Y. And when you hit that divergence point, that's when you find out you, you were measuring it wrong. And so they were going the same direction for so long and you didn't spot the divergence. Nice. Mm -hmm. And so that's always the mystery is, am I measuring this right? And do I even know what the wave is? Because so that's the problem is like, we'll draw these waves and we'll say, here's the economy and it's booming. And they said, what's your variable? Okay. GDP. Okay. What's the real economy underneath that? What's, mm. what is that uh, a proxy for really? Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. if you get that wrong, you'll make the prediction wrong as to whether or not GDP is going to keep going up or not. Right. You got your proxies wrong. So for example, financial crisis, you know, basically <laughs> that was a game of measuring all, all wrong proxies. So mm. basically it's like, everything's going up together. You can't tell what's driving this. And it mm-hmm. all seems to be, perpetual motion machine, you know? Mm. And then all of a sudden they realized that everything's being, basically there was a shell on a bubble, <laughs> dark pool money that made it all an illusion. And you were met, we were measuring the wrong stuff. Mm-hmm. And so like the numbers were lying to us. And so mm. this is always the case whenever you hit like these uh, kind of like big paradigm shifts yeah. is that there's your key. During a paradigm shift, the units of analysis themselves that you should be paying attention to are shifting. Gotcha. In a, mm-hmm. in a macro system. So yep, basically, yep, yep, it's yep. like you've been chasing Moore's law, but now all of a sudden Moore's law is not your primary driver. And you're like, right. holy hell, how'd that happen? Right. Okay. 
So you may then ask the question, what are the primary drivers of the fifth paradigm versus the sixth paradigm? Brilliant. Okay. Right. I wish I asked that question. No, go ahead. <laughs> Let's ask well, that question. Well, you can if you want, <laughs> but I think I'd be- I think you just set it up. <laughs> so that's brilliant. Makes so, my job so, easy. <laughs> so yeah. So basically uh, the digital paradigm is driven by Moore's law, but here's mm -hmm. the thing. Moore's law is not necessarily what people think it is. You know, mm. Moore's law is not just simply the, um, the, the outcome Okay, the outcome is like this, uh, this constant reduction in scale and this constant mm -hmm. reduction in number of transistors on a, on a space and so forth. Mm -hmm. But the cause of that outcome is actually the uh, underlying scientific instruments and the productive technologies that are able to produce ever right. smaller mm -hmm. nanometer, you know, right. lithography. And so it's obvious that when those productive techniques hit the hit the the, hit the wall the curve, mm -hmm. or the down curve, mm -hmm. right? That uh, we have an early warning sign that we're about to run out of a leash there. Hmm. And here's something that many people don't discuss publicly uh, these mm -hmm. days. I kind of blows my mind, but it was already determined back in roughly 2005, 2006 mm -hmm. that cost and benefits are no longer both going up exponentially, you know, mm. basically for Moore's law. Right. So for a good period of time, every generation of computer would come out not only better, but also cheaper. Mm. In other words, the actual cost of production kept right. going down. Right, right, right. Okay. So thing is that stopped a while ago and it mm. reversed which means huh. that the cost of production has been going up for every generation of improvement since 2006 interesting mm -hmm. okay yep. and that the only way that they've been able to continue to sort of mm, i don't know they didn't i will tell you moore's law is not as aggressive as it was but they mm -hmm. were able to fudge it for a while it's mm. by doing really clever multi-layer stuff where basically huh. you know they're like well we're going to be printing in deeper 3d uh structures mm. that we can keep squeezing more efficiency out there instead of making them smaller or thinner because mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, you run out of you know molecules to right to right right save. okay I mean, I do believe that our nanometers, th that this, the scale of our transistors are smaller than the COVID-19 virus. It's really, is that where it is these days? Huh. Well, in terms of uh, the frontier, yeah, okay. uh, basically. That's fascinating. The, and I don't mean the, the whole object, I just mean the scale at which the cuts right. are happening. Right, right. So basically, um, uh, so anyway, like um, um, we're talking about a nanoscale where basically we've run out of ability to get those results. And so now we should have a paradigm shift into quantum and to do that quantum uses different, it has to use organic, uh, chemistry and what they do that they're doing is they're doing manufacturing on the scale of singular molecules now mm. so that they can basically create these like single molecule fields that, mm -hmm excite mm -hmm. and do these like you know quantum right. um behaviors much more efficiently than than um than than the than the early you know the early quantum sure. were just like yep. you know like right. you know tinker toys but but so like quantum is now supreme and that just happened in the past two years where we mm. have 
proof under specific conditions they were able to squeeze that performance out it's not cost effective there yet right but the point is that that cost is going down exponentially and the performance is overtaking and so we're mm. going to have a quantum trajectory which passes however this only works for annealing type and basically quantum type algorithms. Mm -hmm, so it doesn't mm -hmm. work for all algorithms, but mm -hmm. guess what algorithms it's specifically good for complexity hey. <laughs> specifically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so this tells us that, Hey, we actually understand stuff. We know that the complexity science paradigm is being backed by a complexity engine, mm. which means that we are, the, the scientific paradigm of complexity is approaching the mature phase, mm. whereas the economy that would be derived from those learnings are in the emergence phase. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So we have that trajectory, but we also have the trajectory of solar, which also hit that magic point uh, years ago. Mm. Uh, solar uh, Sunshot 2030 was a program the U.S. put together to accelerate the solar process, and it worked. We spent mm -hmm. an extra couple billion dollars a, a year on solar, and we were able to accelerate solar research so fast that they were basically saying, don't give us any more money because we got to put it onto the applied research mm. because that's the bigger bottleneck is the batteries and the, the, the right, network right. and so forth. And so that's why we're trying to raise a ton of money now for the infrastructure, because that's going to be necessary to carry forth that innovation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in the basic model here, you have um, motive, uh, motive branch technology, which the motive okay. is the engine. Okay. Mm -hmm. so like the mm -hmm. Either information or energy. So yep. solar is an energy mm -hmm. uh, uh, engine, right. whereas quantum computing is an information engine. Totally. Yep. So those are the motive branches. They are the first branches of technology in a paradigm shift when we go into a new. Which, paradigm. by the way, in terms of the ontic base of TOK, those are the best two concepts, energy and information. Yeah. Yeah. And that's consistent across Daniel Schmachtenberger's work, yeah. my work. Many people in the bio bioeconomics field are also <laughs> saying those are the two primary units of analysis. Yep. And so at the most abstract level, everything should touch those, you know, yep. uh, either information or energy as a unit analysis. So that drives the paradigm shift, right? Uh -huh. so the science very clearly leads it, right? The, yep. um, mm -hmm. And so that, you, that drives the paradigm shift. And then you go from motive to what we call the carrier branch. And the carrier branch is also called the, um, uh, what do you call the uh, um, complex products? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. for example, automobiles, personal mm. computers. The shit people can use to transfer energy and information to what they want. Right. The complex okay. products that were not possible before, right. once the paradigm shifted, right. became a sudden center products of mm. that a paradigm. So mm -hmm. in the fourth one, it was automobile. Automobiles was one of them in the fourth, including airplanes. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the form factors that mm -hmm. drive those 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 new energy and information gains, right? Right, right, right. And then they create complex industry clusters around which Silicon Valley pops up, or Detroit in the fourth paradigm, or mm. you know. So there's always these center clusters in different parts of the world, right? Okay, and so uh, and so uh, you know. In other words, I'm not going to go any more deeper into that at the moment, but that is called the techno-economic paradigm. It's 
we can date, uh, I can go all the way back to the beginning of civilization, but mm. the strongest dates are from the first industrial revolution forward in terms of the wave harmonics, the patterns, the structures, motive, carrier, infrastructure, services. Beautiful. That's, that's the order. Love motive, it. carrier, so infrastructure, services, and it's parallel to mm -hmm. levels of uh, uh, like hardware to software stack. Yep. You know. The, all right. So let me just plug that in. All right. So this is exactly the kind of architecture from a Utah perspective we need. Right. Meaning that uh, Utah basically with its TOK, it, it doesn't really pick up artificial technological assemblages. Okay. Uh, it doesn't really say much about those. It punts on that stuff, right? But then there's this interface between human behavior, human justification, the earth, and the behavior patterns that all systems across energy information layer and is engaged in. And then we build these technological structures to create energy information flow. And then that's going to create the organization of human um, industries uh, and structures. And so now what you're saying, just adding to that through that angle of expertise is like, oh, well, that's the whole sort of techno social add-on that has emerged as a function of civilization in relation. Uh, and that's just a, like a Lego block, at least from my, you know, uh, self-centered perspective, what it was like, that's the goddamn social science Lego blockage that we need to understand this aspect of the sets of equation, which in some ways is sort of the most macro important. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck's actually happening up here? Yeah. So anyway, it's brilliantly stated and very clear and, and very exciting. And uh, thank you. So that, that example gives you an idea of one of the macro waves of history um, that's of uh, highest importance to us. So let me flash back. So now here's my elevator speech. I have a theory called world systems theory 3.0 uh -huh. and I now we could name it different things, but I figured that it's always better to frame something in perspective of the closest thing like it. Uh -huh. And so for example, your universal theory of knowledge is framed was originally framed as a psychology theory, even though it's actually a universal theory of knowledge, right? In uh -huh. the same sense, my theory is framed is a general social science theory, but it was framed and developed from international relations theory. Ah, okay. And why international relations theory? Because it is the gr granddaddy of macro. Okay. Mm. And the thing is that everybody else but them doesn't know that. <laughs> like, like everybody else but them. Like if you've never had that education in international relations, it's kind of niche. You think that grand, that sociology controls the grand, you know, mm -hmm. or you might think that macroeconomics controls grand in, or anthropology, whatever it is. So yep. all these fields kind of think they control it. The reason why international relations controls grand social theory is that it's like the second oldest social science to history. Mm. Okay, first of all. Right. Originally, all we had for macro at 3000 BC mm -hmm. was astronomy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it basically, you had, you didn't, we didn't have economics. So basically, mm -hmm. we had a, a astronomy, history, and politics. And foreign policy was the highest order level of that problem. So going back to it's Rome. Very interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So what's the oldest book? In, mm. in, do you know what this what this is the oldest book in uh, 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 human history that we have in complete form and that was in constant circulation all the way up to today? Most people guess it would probably be the Bible, 
Yeah, that's what I, I, I that is where I went. Uh, but I that obviously I know that's wrong. So, no, go ahead. I don't know what the answer is. Right. So uh, it is the teachings of Amenhotep. Huh. And the okay. teachings of Amenhotep is a Egyptian book dated roughly around 3200 B.C. Ah. And it is uh, uh, it was a set of learnings, sayings, wise teachings of um, uh, Amenhotep was a was a vizier. Mm-hmm. And he wrote uh, this this basically life guide for bureaucrats in the Egyptian wow. Empire. And the, the hilarious part is everyone thinks bureaucracy was invented in the 1800s with uh, corporations. <laughs> and so, like, you'll see all these models that, like, mm-hmm. in the 1800s forward is the bureaucratic period. Even Max Weber kind of talked like that mm. you know, with the growth of bureaucracy and so forth. Well, it's hilarious because the oldest book we have in human circulation is a book about bureaucracy and how to survive that lifestyle as a young man. It was basically That's, written. I didn't know. Yeah, that. Holy shit. A training manual for young men who wanted to get into the bureaucratic life and they had to learn all the wise th- teachings. Wow. Now, this is so old. We're talking 3000 years before totally. the uh, bur- uh, the Chinese history was officially recorded in the two- 300 B.C. when they first started recording its official history. And the Greeks in, you know, a few hundred years before that. So you're talking about 3,000 years before then. You have a book of, uh, so what are those sayings, right? They're basically, mm-hmm. there are a lot of the same kinds of sayings and teachings that you see in like Confucianism that you mm-hmm. see in, um, you know, like mm-hmm. it's a whole lot of like middle path stuff. Like, mm-hmm. you know, have fun, but not too much fun. You know, treat your wife well, but don't let her push you around. Right, you know, right. Be good to your kids, but like, don't be so obsessed with them that you're not at work all the time, mm-hmm. you know. Moderate, uh, the golden path of moderation, that kind of thing. Huh? It's a handbook for the middle class. Mm, fascinating. Okay. It's and and the middle path, you know, is always a, uh, about the middle class because mm. the middle class has to stand in the middle of all things and basically be professional and hold the world together by mm-hmm. by by reinforcing the bureaucracy. So, if human behavior has been standardized in the bureaucratic format all the way back since the dawn of civilization that's amazing i love this yeah okay yeah 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 yeah. then we have we have continuity in our cognition of how to live in such a world all to today we have institutions designed to manage similar problems like the flooding of the nile and all this other stuff Mm -hmm. we talk about you know the 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 holland and they have built these great water dikes and everything Mm -hmm. to manage Mm -hmm. the water system and that's a wonder of the world they were doing that trying to manage the floods in Egypt all the way back then. Yep. So you had need of bureaucracy to manage this stuff. So the point is like, you have all these big infrastructural systems that from the very beginning were there to manage risk. Yeah. They're there to manage, you know, planning for the future, long-term trying to create stability. And everybody knows eventually you're going to hit, be hit by a swarm of locusts or whatever. And you've got to, the better your forecasts, you know, hmm. the better. So they had, right. we had a bureaucratic society running on, on long-term forecasts all for 5,000 years at least. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. In, in great civilizations. And so you have this structure for a world system uh, to spring out of the central bureaucracies of the world hmm. that plan and coordinate our lives to a much greater degree than the little people think. 
Right. And the people who know about this are the upper class and they control international relations. Mm. So this is an education for the elite. Hmm. Okay. Philosophy, Mm -hmm. history and uh, politics, Mm. both domestic and foreign, foreign Mm -hmm. being international. These were educations for the elite and uh, less than one percent of people needed to have the access, according to your thinking. Hmm. Well, the thing is now, put it, you know, in reflection, you know, I tell you know, you, you look at what CEOs do, what uh, uh, le- mm-hmm. government leaders, people in mm-hmm. high places do. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is more like what the ancient Egyptians were doing than what you and I do. Mm. In other words, they're trying to forecast cycles just like the Egyptians. And mm. so there's like this whole misunderstanding among the, the public that the world is like completely out of control. It's controlled mm-hmm. by people like Donald Trump. It's not mm-hmm. like it's a total mess. It's total cacophony. No one mm. has any idea how anything's working. Mm-hmm. It's just like dog eat dog entrepreneurialism mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, no, in the upper class, everything is so planned. It's unbelievable. It's plans mm. on top of plans on top of plans. Mm. And, and, you know, mm. The highest paid management consulting firms are doing cyclical forecasts mm-hmm. and doing them better. And so they all have proprietary models of how they can mm. predict 50 years in advance. Mm. And so there's this mm-hmm. whole culture in the upper class and in senior management of, mm. of studying everything in terms of like these institutional structures and cycles right. and pa- mm-hmm. phases and periods. Mm. And then they deny it publicly and you'll never hear it on the news. <laughs> you'll never hear it on CNN or you'll never hear it on even even like Bloomberg will never mm-hmm. tell you about business cycles that everybody is using to run companies. Mm. They will deny it and they will say it's this big open you know, neoclassical market and mm-hmm. we're all just mm-hmm. reacting to market signals and, and that's not what's happening at all. <laughs> Fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And so world systems theory 3.0 basically says that since the dawn of civilization, we've had continuity in terms of our big structures, government, okay. businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Uh, International relations is a field that basically tells you about this. You have these basic models of how the world operates and you can, yeah. And Mm. so one of those big models is called world systems theory and world systems theory is the most obsessed with cycles. Mm. And so they try to predict uh, rhythms and phases of world changes that are inevitable and there's nothing you can do about them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for example, the rise is this world systems 1.0. Uh, is yeah, that yeah. what you're now referring to? Okay. Yeah, like mm-hmm. the rise of China or like the mm-hmm. rise of, you know, uh, a new hegemon. So when mm. you hear the, everyone, a uh, hegemon is the most powerful right. sure. nation mm-hmm. during a period. And so the original world systems theory focused on hegemonic theory. Mm-hmm. And so if you took it in IRR class, you were learning that there are these intervals by which the the uh, the centers of power in the mm-hmm. world system shift, such mm-hmm. as, you know, there was a period. Uh, it, we basically would start from Italy and say, you know, mm-hmm. the the um, the Venice Genoa period, mm-hmm. and then after that, you basically had like a, a, a Spanish period and Portuguese period. So then it really takes off when you basically have the Dutch, and mm-hmm. because with mm-hmm. the Dutch. 
you have the beginnings of the stock market and mm. the uh, uh, open world trade and so forth. Right, Dutch Indies whole uh, trade uh, system makes open. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and so all the civilizations become connected over that period. And so then you go from, you basically go from a, a loosely connected kind of regional system Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, clearly, like, uh, the Americas were connected through the Incas and the Aztecs. Right. You had, mm-hmm. you know, Asia was pretty well connected by the Silk Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But these are kind of regional connections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But these things folded up into a world-level connection after the Treaty of Westphalia, 1648, Dutch mm. dominance. And then the British really put it on steroids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so basically, from that period forward all the institutions of the world start falling into a cadence Mm. okay so Mm -hmm. in prior periods the rhythms were kind of regional or local so it'd be like Mm -hmm. there's the east asian cadences and chinese history was written that way it was like look when we're in this phase this happens and then Hmm. in that phase that happens Mm -hmm. the indians Mm -hmm. had a cyclical history that they lived Mm. off of the egyptians Mm. did the Westerners tried to move away from it. They were using mm. it during the Middle Ages and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. But they thought that progress meant the, mm. end, of, the end of Now science. we got transcendent reason and we can just take this. Uh, right. You know, line like up. This and we're <laughs> off the map, you know, like mm-hmm. the cycles don't exist anymore. So everyone said with like the first industrial revolution and the huge inflection point of population and mm-hmm. information explosion and all that. They were like, we have totally gone off the map of history. We are no longer in that cyclical mm. history. You know, we have escaped. And so <laughs> escape velocity, right? Escape velocity. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Right. So basically they think they got escape velocity around the first industrial revolution, which is like 1770s period. <clears throat> and so, um, but what happens is that from that period on, there is a shift or a difference in the cadence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, a greater synchronicity through the world as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but basically, like, uh, every t- every everyone kept trying to pre- predict the end of history. You know, they thought World mm-hmm. War II was the end of history as we knew it, and we were mm-hmm. off the map and so forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is, right after World War II, a lot of the cycles returned that, mm. thought, you know, were disrupted by the war. Okay. Um, and so, like, the Marxists started predicting that they were like, watch, there's profit cycles mm-hmm. and eventually the socialist revolution is going to happen. Cause we're, mm. you know, mm-hmm. we're coming back to like the, we're proving that the system is ultimately crashy. And mm. so it's going to collapse back into ancient history, basically. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And so like uh, the pessimists are saying, you know, there's no cycles here. It's just going to be collapse. Mm. And then the optimists are saying there's no cycles anywhere. You're crazy. Mm. You know, mm. it's 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 too complex. Mm. And then the uh, the uh, so there was a very small group of people who were still kind of using the wave perspective mm-hmm. and saying, you know, it's always worked in the past. I'm going to bet that it's going to work in the future. <clears throat> All right. Lo and behold, turned out that we had done manipulations of the markets that had never happened in world history. Hmm. Such as like the FDIC, okay, Federal mm-hmm. Deposit Insurance Corporation, that basically tried to, to like stabilize mm-hmm. banks in a way that mm-hmm. had never existed before. So mm-hmm. once we started stabilizing banks in various ways, bank mm-hmm. cycles flattened. 
Mm. And bank cycles were a big part, you know, the financial cycles were a big part of what the Austrians were saying was causing all the problem. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, they were denying that the Federal Reserve System could stabilize that. But then when we did, they were like, well, that's that surprised me. I didn't see that mm. coming. <laughs> the Austrians had always been studying the cycles and saying, these are here. Mm. And so everyone said, Austrian cycles are dead. You know, Keynesian, mm-hmm. you know, economics has fixed that. We've stabilized the economy. Mm. And then we keep getting, uh, 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 you know, subtle cycles in the bank system. And then occasionally these big, like, financial crises keep mm. happening mm-hmm. and we're like oh shit so you mean the waves are still with us like the mm. fun- people predicted the financial crisis with waves you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. long story short that's more proof that we actually do know what causes the waves mm. the same stuff that that we thought it was before it's the actual structure of the international system okay the planning mm. system of large organizations the formal mm. structures are uh, things that humans built that mm-hmm. uh, basically we can't really, they, they kind of have their life of their own. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. And we a certain amount of inertia, you set things in motion and then there's a flow of energy information in them that right. take on a life of their own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's some emergent stuff that happens in formal and large organizations where no one person is, is big enough to affect the flow sure. of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you get these cycles. And, and so um, the point is, my theory is, a, is an update of the world systems theory that was started okay. by Emmanuel Wallerstein. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Emmanuel Wallerstein based everything around the Treaty of Westphalia, the Dutch, and then forward. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he also focused. And that's on- world system 1.0. Is that right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And he had a mission of uniting the social sciences around a new Mm. perspective in a new canon. Mm. So he would write alternating books for international relations and books for the general social science crowd Mm. and saying, here's my theory for IR and Mm -hmm. here's my claim to everybody else. Everybody should be reading IR. It's the true godfather of the social sciences, but only the elites have been using it. And so basically, um, you know, uh, it was very neo-Schumpeterian. It's basically he went back to the what's also known as the chondritive wave, which is okay. chondritive waves are these big long economic cycles in the on the world level. Mm. So it's world level booms and busts. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. Schumpeter was aware of that and used it in his model. He was a rival of Keynes. Keynes was saying we can end all these cycles. Schumpeter was saying we need to work with them to a certain mm. extent because they're mm-hmm. inevitable. Mm-hmm. And then mm. any attempt to t- fully squash it will create an opposite reaction that mm. has an unintended consequence. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't as spec- he, he wasn't as skeptical as the Austrians who are just like, keep your hands off completely. Right, right, right. Schumpeter Let it go. was like mm-hmm. they used to call him the right wing Marx. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a <laughs> never but, heard of that. But, but really, he ended up uh, winning because his economics became the the lifeblood of large organizations and uh, that we use mm. today. Mm. It's uh, the center of business school thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, but really, like, so Wallerstein was working with uh, trying to put together a grand model and said, "Here's economics. Here's politics. Here's the big powers. Here's the big economic patterns." Okay. And uh, we're going to show that technology and the anticipa- an- anticipation of shifts in the centers of technology and the leading mm-hmm. technologists mm-hmm. will predict 
shifts in political power. Mm. Mm. And so it became the leading indicator where he'd basically mm-hmm. say, well, the reason why this the, the British rose to prominence was because of the textile industry, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. then the ships. And that became the center of their paradigm. And mm. they became the lead country in the world at the heart of that techno-economic paradigm, which then led them to be the lead political institution mm. on the mm. back of that. Mm-hmm. So like the Wallerstein perspective is since the first industrial revolution, we've been mm-hmm. living in a tech dominant world. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we always have these leading arguments that technology drives this, the locus of power politically. Okay. Um, although there are like phase shifts, you know, mm-hmm. and so it's messy and so forth. And so mm-hmm. the argument there would be China couldn't take us over unless they truly became the center of uh, lead technology. Technology. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that prediction has held consistent since the 1600s. Mm. And so we have yet to see a country be a true uh, number one power that mm-hmm. wasn't the number one in military tech and the number one in production tech. Mm. Gotcha. Okay? So you okay. can't just mm-hmm. simply like have ideas, man. You've got to like- <laughs> Really? Fuck! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so, bad news for me, dude. <laughs> no, so so that was 1.0 is that those mm-hmm. two basic levels, although he did postulate the, the third level of culture or social, mm. didn't do much work on it. Mm-hmm. World Systems Theory 2.0, Andre Gunther Frank. This okay. guy speaks like eight languages. He's been in. Yeah, I like, never heard of this guy until you mentioned him. I think last time we talked, he's kind of like a Herbert Simon character mm-hmm. of a uh, of a quirky heterodoxy. Okay, interesting. Where he he was like the super genius who mm-hmm. spoke like everybody's languages, and he had held department uh, appointments in like half a dozen different uh, sides of universities: mm-hmm. history, uh, geography, economic. Mm-hmm. Like he he did a full tour. He's mm-hmm. one of the rare people who actually did a full tour in holding posts in like half a dozen different fields. Wow. Say his name again, just so people hear. Andre Gunther Frank. Andre okay. Frank, mm-hmm. F-R-A-N-K. Yep. And uh, he was a, a bit of an unknown because he came out of Argentina, I believe, originally. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he had to. He was like the number one public intellectual for a, a hot second before he had to flee the mm. regime because his his ideas were threatening to the political order. Okay. And so then he went to Europe and bounced around and uh, did a lot of stuff. But uh, basically he just traveled the world. He lectured at like 18 different universities and spoke in eight different languages. Amazing. (laughs) It's just one of these crazy. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. And so he picks up Wallerstein's work and some of this other huge civilization stuff. And he said he does a he like reads it all. He's like, I've read all the big civilization books Mm. and I think Wallerstein is on to something. And I think that I can actually do better than he can by taking Mm. into consideration the entire world, not just the Western world since 1648. Wow. And so he says, let's look at the East and the West. And I'm and he wrote a series of books to reorient world systems theory so that it encapsulates all the regions of the world going back much further. Wow. Okay. Only problem is he died. Ah. <laughs> uh, he, was, he was, he was working. He was in the middle of the second book of his power trilogy on this. I mean, he had like tons of publications before this, but he was really in the hot. In the this was where he was really focused. And this is coming right? out. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that was about six years ago and he died. Huh. And mm-hmm. uh, so 
Turns out one of my old professors, uh, his name is Robert Denemark at University of Delaware. I went there in my undergrad and my master's level, but I had him for four classes for international relations. Uh And I always thought he was one of the coolest guys ever and just, just quirky genius. Right. Turns out he's the most senior living matter of world systems theory now because Wallerstein died and Frank died back to back. And they both left him with the unfinished manuscripts. <laughs> Holy shit. No way. Yeah, no, that's intense. And then he had families, members die and COVID-19 and all oh, this God. stuff. And so, like, mm-hmm. here he is in the middle of all this. And he's, like, given a Nobel committee appointment for, like, reviewing the, 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 mm. the life's work of world systems theory and all mm-hmm, this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And oh. I... Right in the middle of this, I give him a call, uh, send him an email, and I'm like, hey, remember me? <laughs> I'm your old student. Right. I've been working on some stuff, mm. and here's what it looks like. Okay. And so I sent it to him, and he was like, I can't argue against this. He's like, I can't say that I fully understand it yet because I haven't read, read a whole book. Right. He said, but I really like what you're doing here, and this is fascinating, but I need to get back to you. I'm in the middle of like – Mm. putting out the shit he was dealing with. Right. Yeah. 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 But he basically tentatively gave me the nod and said, you know, do it. Okay. And and so, so the, what I saw was that two or three structures was not enough grand Mm -hmm. cycles um, in terms of economics, politics, and the social as a generic force. Mm. Um. And uh, also that uh, we could do much better in tightening the model. There are some things that hadn't been included from other fields. Believe it or not, even even the great Dr. Frank overlooked things that we were doing in business, for example, or in Hmm. economics, because that was his weak spot. Okay. Okay. Uh So um, what I saw was that nobody had yet specified a clear model of, you know, the origin point of each one of these waves. Like, Mm. what do you mean politics? When did politics start? Okay. And what is the thing that's waving? Mm. You know, let's make sure we know our units of analysis. Really, I'm a big fan of that friend. (laughs) Right. Cause you know, waves are outcome models where you're just like, okay. So, you know, it's like when you draw a, a a model of like the stock market, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you're predicting outcomes but you're not actually explaining what's causing those things. Mm. <clears throat> that was just like, that's like a, a dumb prediction. I'm just like mm-hmm. projecting sure. a line, mm-hmm. but if you can simulate, if you can simulate the outcome, it means mm. you actually understand what's causing it. Nice. And to do that, you need the units correct and you need a, an internally correct model that, mm. that produces those waves. And nice. we haven't really gotten there yet. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we had a qualitative explanation and a, mm-hmm. you know, a descriptive model of waves. Right. There's like a missing link between them. That Makes sense to me. Part. And everyone was focusing on just innovations, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I saw was this, I said that basically <sighs> new waves happen as the world complexifies. Mm-hmm as we add new technologies, new systems, new infrastructures to the world, okay. mm-hmm. we add new harmonics. Mm. And that means we have to have a model that assumes that every time we have any like big paradigm shifts or innovations, mm-hmm. we're adding variables. Mm. 
and that basically things are getting more complex. Uh-huh. And so on the other hand, those variables don't necessarily contradict the older ones. Right. Okay. So there's uh-huh. your sort of like transcend and include concept. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How does uh-huh. transcend and include work? Well, it means ceteris paribus. I'm adding more variables uh-huh. without, without killing the old ones. Yep. So we are adding layers to our cake. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and so if you go back in world history, you see that the original civilizations were monistic forces. Okay. Everything was integrated into one structure. Right. Sort of this nation, religion, governmental Mashup. state thing that then did its thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mashup. And so there was no clear division. So like accounting as a business practice was done by priests. Right. It was blessed and it was approved by the stars. And so mm. everything was super integral. Mm-hmm. It was the most integral society we had ever had in world mm. history. Everyone likes to talk about, you know, tribes like native mm-hmm. tribes and say, mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's a beauty to how they lived. And mm-hmm. then they say civilization is ugly and it's just, everything's a mess and it's a cacophony. I said, no, wait, you skipped a part. Mm. The earliest civilizations were, were super organized, organized, yep. super mm-hmm. integrated. Everything mm-hmm. had a role. Everything fits. Mm. like a jigsaw puzzle and everything was dense and concentrated with meaning. And so Mm -hmm. every practice, the the money itself had signification and value beyond just currency value. Mm. Everything meant something. And so, and you had no separation between church and state and so forth. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Guess Mm -hmm. what? That's Mm. (laughs) non-dualism. Okay. Okay. So we started civilization from the invention of non-dualism. That's mm. my claim. Okay. Mm. I haven't okay. heard anyone else put it that way. That's a new framing on non-dualism that I've heard. So, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the creation mm. of non-dualism as a philosophy was the creation of the first civilizations mm. that were non-dual in philosophy. Mm. Okay. That's where that came from. It was the idea that everything had its place in harmony. Mm. And the oldest structures that still survive from early civilization are like that. Hmm. Um, some people might have heard of the, the water uh, canal system in, in uh, Bali. Yep. Okay. Uh-huh. There's this elaborate uh, canal system that goes back to the 8th century. And uh, it has roots as far. We don't even know how far back the origins are. But we know hmm. that at least by the 8th century to today, there has been a continuous practice of managing complex water structures for irrigation of hmm. the Balinese society. Mm-hmm, <clears throat> mm-hmm. And they use a cyclical calendar mm. and they have a priesthood. And so mm. it's not like there's this separate group of people who are infrastructure guys who manage, right. you know, the water system. No, mm-hmm. that's actually a priesthood and they have their own lore and their own mysticism and their own symbols for everything. And they have their right. own charting and calendaring and, Mm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and everything has significance and there's like lower ranking and higher ranking priests mm-hmm. at different levels of the mm-hmm. uh, irrigation as it goes down the mountain. And right. And so basically it's this integrated non-dualistic philosophy of religion. And so whatever. And so when people, yeah. So when people talk about integral theory, <clears throat> I've said, um, why aren't you talking about this? 
Mm. You know, that these were the origins of, of non-dualistic or integral concepts was that mm. we had literal institutional structures that did include all of these things in one place at one mm. time. Mm. We mm -hmm. forget that because we don't live in such a world. Right. Uh, <clears throat> oh, it never happened. <laughs> but what's happened is that as civilization has run forward, these integrated structures have fragmented into separate power groups. There's been okay. divisions of uh, power and balances mm -hmm. of power, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we created those on purpose. Mm. Each time that we created a new split, a mm -hmm. move away from non-dualism, mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. move away from radically integrated harmony, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. each time we did that, we did it as a never again response to bad things ah, where we yeah. said never again in civilization will we allow this terrible thing to happen. Mm. This is how we're going to prevent that catastrophic risk. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. So why mm -hmm. did the church and state separate? Well, during mm. the actual age, <clears throat> well, bronze age collapse, well, sorry, before, so Bronze Age collapsed, 1,000, mm -hmm. 1,200, you know, that kind of Right, Sort of 1177 BC is a famous uh, book that basically captures the 50 years of the, I think there are nine different civilizations that actually go down in like 50 years in terms of the Bronze Age. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. So um, the societies were very integrated, but they were also very aggressive. And um, the... Uh, they took their kings very literal, literal as gods on earth at that time. And they were very, you know, hidden away from the ordinary people and the priesthood between uh -huh. them and the rest of the world and so forth. So, um, <clears throat> you know, Wizard of Oz, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so basically we had Wizard of Oz societies. Uh -huh. and, uh, and so what happened, though, was that these, uh, these priesthoods were basically telling the king, that based on historical uh, uh, and, and astrological signs that they had to constantly fight. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And that um, if they didn't, they would lose. So if you're not mm. winning, you're losing. And so basically there was like very aggressive combat going on and very cult-like explanations for society. And long story short, everything was genocidal. Mm. Your cult, okay, it, it's assimilation to the Borg. Okay. Mm. The Hittite Empire gave you two options. You either mm. fully assimilate into our Hittite Borg society mm -hmm. or we annihilate you and there's no third option. Right. <clears throat> and so all wars were genocidal during that period. Mm. Mm. And this was the thing that they realized was the whole problem of non-dualism and integrated societies was that they were Borg-like, that they mm. sound like a utopian solution until you're in it and you, there's no outside. Right. Okay. okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Every, it, everything is a, a, a tautological trap. And once you mm. build such a world, you can't get out. It's a, it's a prismatic mm -hmm. gem where which mm. there's no weak points. It's mm -hmm. so robust. Mm. And so basically these societies were so effective mm -hmm. as being contained, robust gem like structures that they basically were either win or lose. There's no in between. There is no mm -hmm. dynamism, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they had to go down. And so as places like Greece were rebuilding, you had other societies facing the same, learning the same lesson, Persia, China, and so forth. in their early attempts to be mono mm. monolithic societies, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And so they all, by the end of the actual age, declare a separation of church and state. Mm. Okay. So that forces us to spin off a separate institutional paradigm, one for culture and one for politics. Politics mm. around, centered around power of the city, the military, and central, central power. And then the culture being the thing that's allowed to sort of go across borders and be more mm-hmm. fluid. Mm. And so you have religions popping up, religious tolerance within the Persian Empire and, and, and places like that. Mm-hmm. We'll have mm-hmm. multiple different religions in future China, for example. Mm. You never have a true monolithic religious culture in China. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Buddhism and Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism. So long story short, this cultural diversity, ethnic diversity was essential for survival. So di- mm. the original diversity movement mm. was the separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. And the problem was it was never a complete separation. Mm. And so any society from that point on had the dilemma of integrating it back or disintegrating mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so as you run history forward from that point on, you now have these phase cycles of integrative mm. and disintegrative social movements where culture, where politics and culture become synonymous with each other. Uh-huh. And when they become separate, Very concepts. separate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right. So when you have a nationalization wave, it's when you're trying to mobilize mm-hmm. a national culture. Right. Okay. Right? And so that, uh, but uh, when you have a uh, separatism movement, you have mm-hmm. a, uh, a separation between um, uh, political forces and other cultural forces. Mm-hmm. And so basically, like, uh, we can start modeling these things as waxing and waning relationships. And so now mm-hmm. that's a new harmonic that didn't exist right. before the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Following. So following mm-hmm. the same logic, the same thing happened when scientific revolution happened. We, mm. This is something that wasn't present in world systems theory 1.0 or 2.0. They said, well, you know, scientific is like kind of like this exogenous variable. And then, but w- in our model, we have technology and politics. Mm. And I'm like, what about culture? What about science? Mm. So, my claim is that science is a separate institutional structure that drives earlier than technology and techno-economic paradigms are, are this other thing. So now there's mm-hmm. four things. Okay. And these things have broken off at these different intervals in history to create these separations. And every time they do, the harmonics mm-hmm. get a little different and more complicated. Mm. You know, like a three-wave system is different than a two or a four. Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hmm. But as the world's structure harmonizes, the waves mm-hmm. synchronize. Hmm. So you have these various different civilizations with these local differences in political mm-hmm. cycles and technology cycles and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then as the as these things become globalized um, after the great um, you know globalization events, mm-hmm. um, you see a, a, a greater harmony. It's even easier to predict this, mm. the waves get even more stable. So they're mm-hmm. getting stronger and more stable over time. Mm-hmm. And so in our era, they're even stronger than they were flat 500 mm. years ago. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. So, long story short, world systems theory 3.0 then is a four layer model. And I, I do not claim we stop there. We can mm-hmm. keep going as whatever level of detail we want to go to. Okay. But mm-hmm. no fewer than four, because right. these were the most important wave ev- uh, events that created new institutional structures that then carry these waves forward permanently. All right. 
let me summarize them. So uh, you have the original political, okay? <laughs> you break off kind of culture. So you have uh, the religion the and state religion, politics and okay. language. You know, there's also there's then the techno economic production. Right. Is that in science? Right. Um, so that's right. is that, is that basically the four? OK. Right. Uh, and these then are the minimum waves of a society that are operating in some sort of frequency in relationship to another. And then there's an international relational structure. As we have a global event, then that's creating particular kinds of waves. And World right. System 3.0 is tracking exactly what those waves are. And this is the right. minimum ingredients for it. Exactly. And so this is the whole layer of macro waves that stand on top of what you talk about. Yep. Basically, where you're talking about it from the micro up and building the foundations and levels of con- of human behavior and consciousness. And well, I'm not even going to say consciousness because that's a contentious word, but just, you know, <clears throat> human behavior is fine. We're, we'll right, just stay with behavior. Fine. That's a pretty reasonable and ambiguous word. I'll take it. <laughs> right. Whereas my model is institutional behavior. Exactly. Exactly. So what we basically do is say is like, if you were to put institutional behavior with human behavior, you would have a complete ontology of the social sciences. Actually, let's double click on that, brother, because that's a, that's exactly I say that in one of my 2003 papers. I'm like, OK, I, I think I delineated the foundation for social sciences. If you could add exactly what you said, this institutional behavioral pattern, if we could get the ontology of that right, then we could actually clap with two hands from the bottom of human behavior in psychology and the cultural, you know, oral indigenous stuff working together, social relations. And then we build these technological civilization stuff. And then we have, and I think you use the word magistrates at some point, maybe we can bring that word in. These have these different institutionalized magistrates in different configurations across international relations. And it's about getting that um, system, those behavioral analyses, micro and macro together that affords a social science that's up to the task. So I love the sound of that. And most importantly, we're just basically saying this is the new ontological canon or body of knowledge. <clears throat> so you would say a practitioner who says, I aspire to be a social scientist. Where do I start? Mm. The very first thing and the very last thing you would talk about in your career are, are these ontologies. So in the first part of your career, you start by learning from an ontological perspective before you get into epistemology and messy mechanisms and methodologies and all this other stuff. And so like you should you should start with this sort of thing would be like Henriques and Ryan, you know, would mm-hmm. teach you the, the foundations. Then you would go on and do your individual investigations. As you return to a doctoral pursuit, you would start again with reviewing whether or not we know uh, these these structures need to be updated. So maybe right. we're on uh, universal theory of knowledge 2.1. And so sure. basically, you know, uh, where what's the state um, when the student enters the program? And then again, they would go back to their specialty and focus on whatever it is that they were doing. But it would always have a a interoperability map so that anyone doing anything in social sciences would know where they were standing. You are here. Totally. And, and when you finish that work, here's the model that will, will basically be updated. Exactly. 
Actually, if my, a minor point the U in Utah actually is unified. Uh, so rather than universal, but similar. Uh, and actually, no, it's fine. But I'll just make a note because it's exactly related to your point. It comes off of E.O. Wilson's consilience. I, I tie it, which is unity of knowledge and a whole big picture of the whole knowledge. So universal is close to that. But the point that I'm after is, and this is the whole wave that we're talking about in the shift of paradigm, is like, what the fuck is the big picture coherence Right. You know that and unified is another word for sort of people that care about unified knowledge are focused more on coherence at some level of coherence of the model and the interface with correspondence rather than specific correspondence, which is more empirical, um, you know, uh, traditional methodological based science. So it's like, whoa, how does the whole inner logic of the system work? What are the various interrelated pieces? Is there an interior logic? And then do you get a macroscopic mapping uh, to the territory with the map? And then you get that's the coherence criteria and a unified affords a comprehensive and clear intelligible placement uh, of the specifics. And so exactly what you're describing is exactly what I'd hope for. You'd be like, oh, I know where I am in the map. And maybe the macro map stop it. Mac will, of course, need to be evolved and updated and be like, this was wrong. And maybe it's 2.0 now. And that's the nature. But it's that dialectical tension of specific and macro and affording people uh, good locations uh, in their world, human systems frame. That's right. That's right. And one of the mistakes of the early big model people to come back to the beginning of our conversation. Mm, beautiful. I like the cycle. <laughs> they didn't play well with the others. They nope. didn't build interoperable models. In fact, they they were at war. Um, yes. And more to the point, um, they so they were doing that because they were they were pushing certain uh, uh, what I would say biased or simplified models with say we're only looking at one epistemology and the others yep. are wrong totally it's, it's things like that and so it was a war of epistemology as much as anything but also the problem was that um, they did not understand how to create an open system model right. that was not so egotistical that everyone wanted to own it. It's right. like, it's mine. Right. And it, and it needs to dominate, right? My nation right. needs to win. You know, it's like, no, right. actually we need to get trans egoic, trans justificatory. You have to understand the position that you're aspectualizing. And then rather those other people are going to aspectualize different things. You get harmonics across that. Then you can see what I talk about, see the elephant sun God, which is look at the biggest thing through lots of perspectives with an integrated pluralistic view. And I think that's the sensibility that's emerging. That's right. And so you're always going to have pluralist big models. You're never, uh, it's sort of like how the military has two of everything. The famous scene in Armageddon where they take up the two different drills and the one breaks. And they're like, mm. aha, we knew that was going to happen. <laughs> they, they basically gave us 15 freaking clues that that was going to happen. But the whole joke was like, you know, um, you've got to have multiple tools no matter what. And, right. and that's true for complex systems. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when you're trying to understand a complex system, you could never say that, oh, well, my tool is 86% correlated with reality. <laughs> Your tool is also 86% correlated with reality. Hmm. Interestingly enough, sometimes in specific instances, mine is the better tool. Sometimes yours is the better tool. Right. And that's so like in a in a NP incomplete problem, you know, like basically talk about calculative. All you can do is get the 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 closest fit. There's no perfect. 
Totally. And, and so I've learned that over time, certainly sorry, you have a big picture model and you have to learn the ego and then the, and thankfully I'm a clinician. So I at least get to show myself in the mirror and be like, yeah, you're, you know, there's your goddamn ego. So you at least see it. And then the you evolution ego, cause you have to, you got to have a little you ego. You, so you got to have to, you have a little bit of humorous yeah. and hubris yeah. and challenge people. They got to have that. Um, but what I found over the years is sort of like, okay, I'm an American clinical psychologist. I say this on Bard's list all the time. It's like, I'm an American clinical psychologist, which means I'm aspectualizing certain features of the system of science and justification and tradition that I grew up in, which is great in certain aspects and unbelievably blind in others, you know, right. and then, and the emergent system, big picture emerges out of my aspectualizing certain features of the big picture. And as a function of that, it gets certain things right. And it absolutely needs complementary perspectives on Zoroastrianism from Bart's perspective and world systems perspectives, right? From in relationship to the industrial, international, historical relations at the global level and, and, and then physics and everything else. And if we can afford ourselves that capacity to transcend the narrowness of inside your justification, having it be perfect and then only working, but to an interloping system uh, of sophistication and integrated pluralism, well, then I, I think we'll be able to find knowledge systems that actually are up to the task as we head into the back half of the 21st century. Yeah. And one of the keys of that is basically uh, not trying to always reinvent the wheel when you're building a grand model. And so a really good grand model is starts with a literature review and meta analysis. It does not start with Hmm. Got to be inside a particular literature in particular and know it and then construct it that way and then read a hell of super broadly. Because you'll um, make all the same armchair so. mistakes that the other greats made when they right. first started. And totally. so um, it, you got to stand on the shoulders of giants mm. and be humble. Right. And so, and then you also have to realize that your life work, almost as soon as you're done, it is already going to start aging. And so, so you have to have the humility to know that your role was to create uh, a, a step or a structure that w could then keep the conversation going. Love it. Love it. I, I often talk about passing the baton of energy information down the road. Okay. Right. A, you know, it's like, I got it. I can advance it. And it sure as hell ain't the whole goddamn picture. <laughs> so you got somebody else going to pick it up uh, and advance it. So, Hey, this was a really good. Is there, is there anything about world systems 3.0 we didn't see or any horizon stuff as you look to the future and, you know, as optimistic or areas of concern or hopes for you in terms of the development of this worldview uh, three point system, world systems 3.0. Yeah, there's two big points I wanted to make to wrap it up. The first one is to say, let me tell you the, the four phases we're in and where we're okay, shifting. Please, yeah. And then the really big punchline is that I see a fifth wave coming, basically, mm. if, or, or, or a shift in the structure. And we haven't had one of those since the 1690s. So okay. fasten your seatbelt, folks. <laughs> exactly. When the techno economy became an independent institutional structure from the state. Um, which spun off basically in England, Sweden, Netherlands, that part of the world first, and then other places where it you know, became separable structures like the stock market, the ins insurance markets, and all that other stuff, justifying economics as its own language. Okay. <clears throat> so anyway, where are we? So the uh, postmodern wave, uh, 1940 ish to 2020 ish yep we're all kind of like well over all the critiques of postmodernism, and we're all ready to move on to the next thing so it's just a matter of laying the track down yep and so 
the debate is, is metamodernism the answer? <clears throat> or is it transmodernism? Or is it transhumanism? Or is it posthumanism? And so there's various different camps. Mm-hmm. And the task of answering that is to say, what cultural paradigm are we in? And why would we predict that? Mm. Well, most of the other people I see in the metamodern space are predicting themselves with only t- uh, two or three waves deep. Mm-hmm. They're basically saying, look, here's modernity, postmodernity, and then us. Mm-hmm. And when you do it that way, you think that metamodernity is just mm-hmm. the folding of the two in a non-dual state. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you just say modernity, postmodernity, non-dual version of that, metamodernity. So All right. Really yep. that the way that history always progressed is some sort of non-dual integration. Mm-hmm. I'm making the claim that, no, we started there. <laughs> it doesn't mm. progress that way. Mm. That is the reset button. Mm. In fact, non-dualism mm. is the reset button where we try to create stability, not change. It mm. is when we try to say, stop, we do mm. not want the world changing so fast mm. in so many directions. We want to... Mm declutter and and recenter mm. and find a calm and everyone wants to meditate and you know put everything mm-hmm. in alignment and get their chakras in order and all that mm. stuff and mm-hmm. that's not new that's the mm-hmm. very dawn of civilization we've been there before and so we're mm. in one of those phases okay. okay one of the dangers of those phases is that you do have a little bit of a uh, uh, a power swing um and so like you know the, the feudal period was one of those phases, it was mm-hmm. a non-dual phase where everything reintegrated mm-hmm. into the Lord and manner and mm-hmm. the religion and the state started creeping together and economics were, and we're getting really tight. Mm-hmm. And basically the way it works is everything's really harmonious inside the system, but there's no challengers and there's no balance mm-hmm. of power. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. China is doing this. And so if China were to on the current trajectory mm-hmm. Were mm-hmm. to win the future, you know, mm-hmm. They would be instituting a globalist, non-dualist culture with mm. China at the center. Okay, right. yep. that would be a cultural hegemony. Mm-hmm. Okay, going back to the world systems model, would yep. we predict a cultural hegemony in China? Probably only if they were the center of both science and technology. Mm. Guess what? Mm. It's not how Asia works. It's mm-hmm. a triangle. The uh, East Asia has been a historical triangle of Japan, Korea, and China. Mm. It has also been a historical tri- triangle of multiple religions. It has also been a historical tri- triangle on all these. Basically, uh, you can ne- the Chinese system is not China alone. It's the right. entire right. East mm-hmm. Asian system. Mm. Okay. okay? Mm-hmm. When China is dominant culturally, mm. and it, uh, it becomes this uh, integrated system and structure, mm-hmm. when it, it, rivalry picks up, between Japan and Korea and so forth, it actually challenges that. So you Mm. would say, well, if Korea and Japan are serious challengers to China in any way, they might be able to disrupt that sort of integrative pattern. Okay. That's just one way to analyze it. One way way is China versus India, Mm. right? So you can analyze that dynamic. So there's a lot, or Europe, or you can, so there's a lot of these different uh, triangulations you have to make to make these predictions. So it gets messy, not bet. But the short answer is this, only if the new hegemon succeeds in creating this non-dualistic kind of global mm-hmm. culture mm. would uh, we would say that's our paradigm. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So metamodernism doesn't actually become the global paradigm in my model 
unless mm-hmm. it's embodied as the hegemonic force. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's not enough that a few people in, you know, art circles in the Netherlands and, you know, California love it. It's mm-hmm. got to be, you know, legitimized. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we could be 80 years out from a time period where that is the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if so, if that is the correct prediction, then the metamodern paradigm, as described by the integral folks, and mm-hmm. are correct. Mm-hmm. The non-dualist analysis where we go modernism, postmodern, metamodern. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. if, if you take a longer harmonic, you see a different pattern, mm-hmm. more powerful. Okay. So the older the harmony, mm-hmm. the more powerful. I said that at the beginning of the uh, mm-hmm. uh, video. Mm-hmm. So if we were to see a harmony that was like, that's not enough cycles of analysis to understand mm-hmm. the future, then that would be the wrong interpretation of what's going to sure. happen. Mm-hmm. And so let's say we go back to the beginning of the industrial revolution and say, we are still in the industrial era. Mm. We're still okay. in the industrial era. That's the anchor point. Mm. And so all cycles must originate there mm. until we leave that era. You okay. see? Okay. Mm-hmm. So just like emergence at any stage, yep. Makes we're sense. still there until we create a new system where that's no longer the, the harmony pattern. Okay. My claim is we're still in that era still, and people mm-hmm. are a little jumping the gun and saying that we're in mm. a new era. Why mm. am I saying that? We don't have a fifth structure yet. <laughs> mm. So as long as we've got the same structure, we're in the same wave harmonics, we're stuck and anchored from the first industrial paradigm. Guess what? I'm mm. the only one who actually has an explanatory argument here. Ah. Ask mm. them how they actually justify their model. Right. <laughs> they don't right. know. Right. They don't know how right. it works. They just right. they all modern, postmodern, the next thing, Hegelian, okay. that's as far mm-hmm. as we go. <laughs> so my theory is that we need to go back all the way to the beginning. And that means there's four waves we need to take into consideration since then okay. in culture. And that would be, it goes, uh, um, the liberal period, then okay. the modern period, then the postmodern period, then the meta, and the period, and, and the, the older harmonic, the traditional harmonic behind that is the, the traditionalist society mm-hmm. that is often mentioned in some other people's work. Mm-hmm. But they skip the liberal period. Lena mm. skips it. Mm-hmm. And this is critical that Lena skips this. The 80-year period, the liberal period, is where both of the great magisteria of our times were invented, the techno-economic and the scientific. Mm. And so to skip that harmonic is to basically miss the most important root action that we've been living in since the 1600s. And so mm. adding that back in the model, I'm going to come up with a different interpretation of metamodernism than okay. they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to have time to get into it in this video, but that's a cliffhanger. Well, it's a cliffhanger. We get it right to the edge, and then we'll see. No, it's beautiful. Right. And then I'll I'll not go into any depth with the other three. Okay. We already said we're going from the mm-hmm. digital, from the fifth uh, techno-economic, and the sixth that we're crossing over right now mm-hmm. is the you can call it either the green or organic. I prefer organic mm. because that's the description of the technology and the type of uh, design logics. Okay. Uh, green is like p- a political statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, basically, uh, we are entering that emergence period of that paradigm, and we have all the trajectories to prove it in terms okay. of solar, in terms of quantum. And mm-hmm. so the third one, the political, is a 50-year shift. And 
we uh this is like you can there's a couple of major models that i integrated for this and every political science person knows them i'm not going to explain it right now mm -hmm, but there's mm -hmm. a sort of a liberal conservative harm uh, harmonic okay. pattern every mm -hmm. 25 years and then there's mm -hmm. uh there's basically the the, the um uh, what you call basically the foreign versus domestic harmonic mm -hmm. every 50-ish mm -hmm. years so mm -hmm. you get this cycle like this where basically you go around a quadrant of like mm -hmm. in uh domestic versus foreign or conservative mm. versus progressive dominance and, okay. and, and and so as we're going around that cycle again we're coming up among the emergent swing mm. so we're getting we're shifting into a new political paradigm mm. okay political technological cultural mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. happening now and the fourth one uh, uh, uh scientific well, that's also happening now because that's the that's the uh, except for that's on a half harmonic because it mm. emerged 40 years ago. So mm -hmm. that's the stabilizing force because it's the oldest harmonic. And mm. so uh, basically the complexity paradigm is stabilizing the others. And therefore, mm. any one of those other paradigms that doesn't start with complexity as their base mm -hmm. are making the same auger that I said Lean is making. Mm. You always have to start with the oldest harmonic as being your base. And so. Mm -hmm complexity first mm. so we are in a complexity dominant era that mm -hmm. also has a meta modern push which mm -hmm. we are not defining correctly yet because we're misreading the tea leaves and then we also have this uh this this green swing and or, or organic swing organic uh-huh right mm. and uh and so you have all these all these stacks okay well the thing is we haven't had a stack this deep since the first industrial revolution which okay. is a signal of what the end mm. of that era, because right. they're all coming back around to basically the same level of intensity that we had when we created the liberal paradigm, the first industrial revolution, the political shift from colonialism and like all happening at the same time. So over the next 40 years, we're playing out, yes, the same level of intensity change as that period, as the liberal all period. Right. So all right. I say we are actually in a neoliberal period. Okay. Rather than a, a, a metamodern, metamodern. Okay, so it's a and second layer. We should already know that because that's mm. what everyone's whining about. Yeah. <laughs> right? So why aren't we just telling the truth and saying metamodernism is the reaction to the liberal dominant, the neoliberal mm. dominance? Hmm. So I'm working on the definition of how to work this out because that's the political term, mm -hmm. neoliberal. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. basically, we need a better term. And um, uh, Michelle Bowens is arguing for uh, he likes uh, um, transmodernism instead. Right. I know. Because mm -hmm. it implies a more open or liberal behavior. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And meta is much more rigid uh, mm -hmm. because it implies frames on top of frames on top of frames. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so if the meta people are right, we're going into this non dualist, heavy frame, mm -hmm. heavy gem like, you know, rigid mm -hmm. structure emanating out of China. And mm. if the, uh, the, the more neoliberal or what I would call the decentralization argument is correct, which mm. is what Bowens and I are talking about, we are mm. triggering an opening mm. for a new institutional structure rather than just a re-entrenchment yeah. of these other four into a... Into a mm. Right. And right. so as this window opens, a fifth structure will be born, and we call it right now the commons magisteria. Love it. Okay. okay. Fascinating. That was the big idea. Right. So there it is. The fifth, uh, yeah, opens so, up exactly. So when you have you have a a door that opens in terms of harmonics for and it, 
Now, history could go otherwise. The events have to occur. <laughs> of so the events have to occur to create the magisteria of the commons. Otherwise, it's a missed window. And guess what? We are going back to a rigid, integrated mm -hmm. system. Yeah. But if the window of opportunity is seized and we produce a fifth structure that we haven't had yet in the international system, that fifth structure will then create a new sort of leveling up uh, of, of everything at once, which would be really nice because we could yeah. kind of use that. We're, we're, we're running up against the wall here and that leveling is surrounding the what? The environment. And so everyone can put two and two together and say, our biggest wall is our biggest opportunity, which is a, a uh, institutional structure around the, um, the, the, the two kinds of energy and data, right? Mm -hmm. One, yep. basically the environment, essentially, and data being the human uh, data, the basic sure. the world data problem. Beautiful. Twins and all that good stuff. Love it. And so, yeah, that's a, that, that, that's a very nice summary, I think, of what, you know, what right. World Systems 3.0. Um, brings us in the framing of that. Certainly, uh, there's lots of conversations for us to have. We're running out of time, so we'll because we said we try to narrow. narrow oh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, putting yeah, a go grade ahead. on it, like please. My whole point is, I'm not being cocky about this because I think I'm smarter than other people. It's nothing like <laughs> that. I'm being cocky about it just simply because the scientists with the deepest explanation and the strongest predictive model who can tell you exactly why it's more predictive is going to win the argument. Mm -hmm. And my claim is that the people who are trying to tell us what these paradigms are, you know, complexity and metamodern mm -hmm. or what, you know, mm -hmm. whatever these global paradigms are, if they're not using the right heuristics for defining them, they're getting them wrong. Like mm -hmm. I just said, in terms mm -hmm. of metamodernism, basically mm -hmm. maybe guessing the wrong direction. We're at this point, right? Yep. Does it go like this or does it go off to infinity? You know, like right, I said. Right, 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 right. So. Yeah. No, I think you laid that case out very nicely. Um, and I look forward to our continued conversations. Uh, you know, the the shorthand from the tree of knowledge is, hey, we're going to go through the fifth joint point here, you know? Uh, and the fundamental reason is the 20th century lays down an information novel, global connected information network builds artificial intelligence systems that upgrade technology. So it starts interfacing with our human intellect, the intelligence digital dynamic. And then when we lay that down and that grows out of infrastructure, that's an entirely new potential for a complex adaptive plane of existence. And that's going to change fucking right. enormously. Bart right. calls that uh, system attentionalism and sensocracy. Yep. And I totally. say yes, but um, I, uh, that's an interim step to me until you actually have a commons that separates the sensocracy from well, I the other systems. That's so why I look forward to us to dialoguing about the various kinds of domains and uh, yeah. also this concept of magistrate, which we didn't pick up on, but maybe sometime uh, either just privately or put it up on the web, have another you talking, whatever. But the bridge between what this thing of justification systems that I grabbed a hold of, okay, yeah. as the fundamental organizer of capital C culture, and then what that does at the human behavior level and relative to technological interface and the energy information flows. There's a lot of good shit for us to uh, mine uh, going forward. I really look forward uh, to seeing uh, what evolves in relationship to that kind of synergy and difference. And uh, it's fascinating. It's just a beautiful time for me. It's like, oh my God, look where we are, people. <laughs> yeah, it's great because, you know, and, and like these things are coming together as we talk to each other, as Michelle and I talk to, we get, 
each other, we came to the conclusion that his models and my models or our interests were, were convergent. Mm -hmm. Alexander Bard, the, uh, his, his arguments about attentionalism and so forth, although the main difference between him and me is mm -hmm. that if you were to stress synthios as being the dominant concept, you mm -hmm. would be arguing that the cultural paradigm is in ascendance. Mm -hmm. So you would basically say that culture, as opposed to these other economic, scientific, and uh, you know, uh, political systems, you know, religion is in the cultural paradigm. So if we create a new God and that really happens, whoosh, it becomes dominant. And so now our, our, our world system is going to be driven by a global religion, essentially. Mm -hmm. If that were the, that would be the extreme case. Sure. But sure. that would be an alternative scenario than the creation of a fifth magisteria. Yeah, that, yeah. No, and that's what we're all super excited. We're on the edge of this thing. Everyone's throwing stuff in there, wondering, yeah. we'll see what happens. And uh, I hope that our the general sentiment that we'll learn from the past and an integrated pluralistic attitude uh, and Zoom world and other digital technologies afford us to get together and, and connect. And I love the idea of an emergent uh, wisdom magic commons magistrate uh, that ties us together and affords us sort of a new international relational space uh, to grow into. So it's a beautiful vision. Uh, and uh, I really appreciate you coming. And I think it's really important. Out for me. We make this common knowledge. Right? Basically, we've got to. It's all about taking. These are the the systems of knowledge of the upper class. Uh, they're not just so these are not just theories. These are the actual systems of knowledge that the upper class have been using all along. <laughs> OK, <laughs> and so what we're really kind of doing is doing a, the Promethean trick and we're stealing fire from the upper class education mm. and saying, here's what we've been hiding all along in plain sight, which gives us a model of social phenomenon, which explains why they can always out predict everything that we're doing. <laughs> Right. Well, we can steal the culture, steal the fire, and then build our own uh, going right. into the next. Uh, so, all right, and friend. Build the commons that work. Build the commons that affords it. That's the, that's yes. the vision. I love that's that. That's what we're uh, trying to do. do. Uh, all right. Love it. We'll talk to Michelle Bounds and all that. So, all right, folks. Uh, I think this brings it to, to a close. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your passion and your vision. Uh, it's really fascinating. Uh, and I look forward to circling back in. I look forward to getting deeper into the harmonics between your work and mine. Definitely. Brilliant. All right, friend. Wonderful.